Hello and welcome to Public Access America. This is just the tip. The tip the rollout, much less the actual production and the rollout itself. So we're 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 in a tough spot. So all I can say is, look, if if you have any symptoms of any respiratory disease, stay home and let people know that you might have had COVID in close contact. Right? Just just let them know. If you don't know what it is, if you test for COVID, you're not sure. And if it's negative, you know, still stay home, still make sure people are aware because if they get sick, they need to be aware. That's the one major message I have because we're trying to spin up a lot of federal level responses that's going to take time. And if you individually do your responsibility to try to stay home if you're sick, to not to isolate, to wear the mask if you have to go out in public, all that mm-hmm. stuff, right? Do the right thing because if everyone does a little bit of the right thing a little more, it'll make the federal response a lot more effective in the long run. It is time now for something positive. We might be headed to the promised land of speaking the truth and finding our external liberty once we internally liberate ourselves. Problem can only be solved when there is a kind of coalition of conscience. This is the beginning, it is not the finale, and that's why we're here, and that's why we rally, 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 rally. We've got to be that creative minority, creative minority, creative minority. Find a way to get in the way. I got in trouble, it was good trouble, it was necessary trouble. Frankly, I know we've got to do something. Hello, hello. Good hello, to be hello. back. The noisy long. Nice. I'm so happy you're here. Um, yeah. We recorded. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, it's already done? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah, oh, we're yeah. just wrapping up. <laughs> yeah, I said, I said, it's 2 p.m. Eastern, okay? And you said, okay, no, I'm Oh, I'm sorry. I knew I, I thought it was 12. I thought you wrote 12. I'm bad at email. I'm sorry. I was oh, just. Oh, no worries. You got in. But I love you. I he, Jeffrey asked, like, I hope he's okay. And I was like, yeah, something came up because Dan's never not been oh. here. And I'm happy to keep talking, but I can't. I can't promise you, Jeffrey. Like, but I'm I glad can, you're here. I'll I keep can do going. a. I can do a little bit longer. Um. Cool. So, but like, give me a second, and I'll be back. No That's worries. not a problem. Hey, I'm so I'm so sorry because I I I think we messed up because I I feel like I remember we've done one p.m. In the past, and, uh, um, Eastern, and I asked what what time right. you start is two p.m. Eastern acceptable? Gotcha. So, yeah, I My probably bad. just saw I I saw one because I wanted to see a one. You know what I mean? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, I hear you. Like there there's blind things, but then there's guy things of just being lazy. So <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's fair. I I I feel bad though. Um, I would always if I couldn't make it, I would always give you guys a a fair a good reason because I, oh, sure, I value your time. Like if you guys are gonna create something something cool, I want to support it. So well, I, I appreciate that. You're fine. I don't. I have no problem with that. More content is better than less content, and having Dan is better than not having Dan. You know. And yeah, no worries. I love that. So. You've been off for a month. What have you been doing for your so, mental health? In the past five weeks, well, I, Marissa, my wife, and I went to um, England, Scotland, and Iceland for a five-week excursion. You're kidding me. It was fantastic. It was like a combination of stuff. So um, seeing my family over there, because I have family in England. My mom was born there. Um, and then uh, seeing them for a few days, and then just doing some touristy stuff in London and then in Edinburgh and Glasgow. Wow. Uh, but my brother lives in Inverness as in like Luckness. Uh, so I went up there to visit him in the Scottish Highlands for a few days with my wife, of course. Um, wow. We came down and explored Edinburgh, Glasgow and then um, flew over to Iceland and did 12 days where we rented a car and we saw the entire country. Like we drove more than 1200 miles um, all over the country in like 12 days. And that doesn't count. That doesn't include, we had a 12 hour off-roading tour that we went right into the middle of the country and snowshoed on a volcano in June 23rd. Wow. It was great. So, 
That's how you know snowy. love is going to last when you can survive 12 hours and 1,200 miles in a car with your significant <laughs> other and not dump them at the side of the road. Like, I'm surprised exactly. she just didn't kick you. <laughs> no, it was, she was super excited. Like, we, we, it was a, we, we planned it together, and uh, she was actually the person in charge of the itinerary. So I, I sort of, we, we carved out the time, and she was the one who, who took the lead on what we wanted to do in there. So it was it was really great. It was wonderful. It was really nice to get away and kind of have a nice mental reset. So, yeah, I that's that's, that. that's kind of where I, what I've been up to. So how about you well, guys? Con- congratulations, Marissa. She got a really good guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm really happy. And now I can acknowledge her. I'm sorry, because I only bring up what people bring up. I don't, of course, I don't yeah. expose other people's private lives. Uh, so I did say that you were on honeymoon, I think, but I never said with who. <laughs> oh, yeah, no worries. Yeah, my, my wife's name is Marissa. Uh, she's really great. Um, she's she's an amazing psych- sleep study expert, right? Yeah, she's a clinical psychologist whose wow. uh, research experience is focused on sleep, but it's not the only thing that she does. But she, okay. she's, she's got a lot to offer, which is really great. And it's nice to... She gives people therapy, and then I come home and I give her therapy, and it's a wonderful cycle. So, isn't that beautiful? Uh, just yeah, have, just being there for somebody sometimes is the reward we need, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, that's why yeah. I like coming on and supporting the show because y'all are great, and I want to support it. So, I, I, like I wrote, I told Jeffrey, I was like, I can't even imagine where the conversation is going to go between Jeffrey. <laughs> like, I would, I would never try and script that. Why well, put two Ferraris in the seat of a Toyota and ask him to get there? You know what I mean? Mm, absolutely. <laughs> I um yeah I, I wanted to ask you what's top of mind coming back but I love to, so what I want to know now is is did you notice any differences in where you were in the way things are as opposed to here is there anything that makes sense that they're doing across the pond that we do that doesn't that would make sense here I don't yeah, know. Does that make public sense? transportation. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, investing in supporting public transportation is it was really really noticeable, um, okay. and having well subsidized, not free all the time, but well subsidized trains like a, a rail system that was able to go all the way all across um, Scotland via rail system and be able to see so much of the country, and everything was really on time and really efficient because they had the infrastructure to make it happen. Now, of course, there have been those the strikes the the over there, um, especially when we were in England, uh, there was a lot of travel that was affected by striking. Um, but at the end of the day, the 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 critical lines are still available, and it was so easy for us to go through multiple cities in the UK without having a car, without needing one, between busing and just walking. Like so many people would walk everywhere. And that's it that. was a really stark difference culturally from the United States where everyone drives, first of all, because we're things are more spread out here in general. But even in the city, right. a lot of people drive because they're the the public even the the cities that we consider having good public transportation pale in comparison to the European a lot of European cities. So that's something for us to kind of chew over, especially Agreed. I mean, responsibly in the age of COVID and everything, but the ways that we can improve accessibility of our cities and in between our cities too, to the public who don't, you know, especially considering how high gas prices are and everything, it's just being able to give them another option and investing in that for our, for our benefit. That was one thing that stood out. Not the only thing, but the one that popped to mind first when you asked the question. That's funny. I had this thought that cars didn't naturally develop because we needed them. I think cars developed because somebody sold them. <laughs> and yeah. we could, like our country could have just gone in a different direction if the subway salesman or the train salesman had been better than Henry Ford, you know? Yeah, I mean, that we did have, I mean, for the longest time, for decades, rail was the only way to go long distances. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... I, I don't know. I really just don't know the history. Maybe Jeffrey knows more. Um, but the 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 concept that the modern city in America was built around the car and walking, as opposed to having a lot of public transport available. I mean, right. the, the the New York City, LA, they have their subway systems and everything, but um, it's really not something that is well invested in. That is so right. useful for millions of people, especially look going through London. I mean, could you imagine if we if the London did not have an efficient or even any kind of functioning underground and everyone had to go by car, the city would just not function. So of it would course not, go yeah. to a standstill. So anyways, Jeffrey, how long do we have you for? And I again I apologize for the, the misunderstanding about the timing. I believe you are muted. I see you, you are muted. 
Uh, probably another 20 minutes and then, um, and then I definitely will have to get off. So, That's okay. Fine. Yeah. Then I, w- I will give you the next 20 minutes. Excellent. All right. So monkey pox, Dan, this is, <laughs> hey. this is, this is an interesting one just because, you know, it, I saw that, uh, I want to say it was the WHO was looking to have it declared a pandemic. Um, and so I, you know, it doesn't feel like COVID in a lot of ways where, you know, when we started seeing cases, you know, with COVID, we, we didn't have good testing. We didn't have a great foundational knowledge, I would say, publicly as to how it was going to spread and how quickly it was going to go. Monkeypox, however, you know, we understand a lot more about monkeypox than we understood about COVID. And, and, and I would say that. You know, there's probably good reasons as to why we understand more about monkeypox, but you've had, you know, poor, poor messaging from the looks of it, real difficult vaccine distribution. And on top of that, the public messaging behind it has also been not so great where, you know, it's kind of, there's being a lot of comparisons and a lot of broadcasting drawn back to the old 1980s odds, just men, you know, fucking men. So, monkeypox, Dan, take it away. All right. Well, there's a lot of interesting detail about, like, the you brought up all the little small things that are coming up. But I think I want to take a step back and, and, and look at the bigger picture of this. So, it's actually based on a paper that I read this morning in the journal Nature, which is one of the most prestigious journals um, in science. And it really was emphasizing the concept that this is going to be the norm. And by this, I mean... Weird infections emerging and spreading throughout the developed world. And because of climate change that is forcing habitat um, relocation of different species from which microbial infections we don't know about can spill over uh, into humans, Um, habitat destruction from deforestation, population growth, all these things are moving in a direction where we're going to keep seeing the emergence of new infections at a faster and faster rate. And even though in this case, monkeypox, this was this infection is um, something that we know about, the, the, the circumstances in which it is spreading are definitely very different from what we had expected. And when I say we had expected, um, back when I was doing my training um, in infectious disease microbiology and public health, in multiple of my classes on virology and epidemiology, we talked about, you know, what could be the next big spillover pandemic and monkeypox was a front runner for that. Like that was, um, I remember a lot of journal clubs and discussions about, you know, being prepared for this, considering how closely related it is to smallpox and, and, and how devastating that had been for nearly all of human history um, and people being worried about it. Of course, this was pre-COVID, but we had some understanding of how monkeypox was kind of how it worked. And this is different, right? It's it's spreading uh, outside of the United States, throughout the United States, in, in a much faster way than we expected. Um, historically, when monkeypox has come to the United States, it's been under very different circumstances. Um, it also seems to be spreading much more rapidly than we were expecting. Um, and we did know that it could spread through sexual transmission, but oddly enough, it seems like what we know so far is that it's almost exclusively sexual transmission at this point. And there's a huge caveat to that, which you mentioned, you know, the, the testing vaccine rollout, the logistics of the monkeypox response have not been as good as we'd hoped there would be, especially considering everything we thought we'd learned from COVID. And I want to point, I know you're a data guy, I want to point you to a particular point of data. So the CDC is routinely updating its website and posting out press releases on monkeypox cases throughout the United, the United States. Um, and what we had seen for most of, you know, was the gradual increase. Hey, we have a couple more cases, like daily case counts, like two this day, three this day, four, whatever, going up. Um, last week, there was an announcement that from several different commercial laboratories that they were going to start monkey, uh, doing monkeypox testing. It wasn't just going to be like the public health laboratories that are publicly funded from the CDC and such. Um, and then just a few days after those announcements rolled out, the CDC gave an update where instead of like 10, 15, 20 cases, they announced in one day, 476 confirmed cases. So it, if you look, it looks like a hockey stick, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the case count, right? And it's, what's really alarming about that is that it's a fun, it's very clearly a function of we have more testing available and more people getting tested, more people are testing positive. Now, when you see that, what that means 
is that we were woefully under-testing beforehand. It doesn't mean that it went from 30 to 406 in a single day. It's that we expanded our testing capacity, and now we know, wow, it's spread much, much further than we expected it to be. So monkeypox is going to be the next epidemic. It already is the next epidemic in the United States because we have fallen behind on testing, and the data that just came out on Friday from the CDC proved that. So how is this going to affect a lot of... It's going to be a lot of... A lot of stigma against the um, the gay community, the men who have sex with men, or MSM community, as we use in public health, because that's most of the cases. But as we know with HIV, as we know with other infections, just because it starts in one particular group that we like to stigmatize doesn't mean it's not going to spread to other people, right? Mm -hmm. We know that monkeypox doesn't just spread through sexual transmission. It spreads uh, through respiratory droplets, just like a cold or flu or COVID. Um, contact with body fluids that's not just COVID, uh, that's not just sexual transmission, excuse me, it has the potential to go very far. And we just, we have a, a vaccine stockpile that we could use. We have things rolling out, but if it really does spread extremely rapidly that in a way that we just have not accounted for, which is likely, it's going to be very hard for us to keep up with the pace of the demands for those resources and therapeutics and vaccines that, yeah, we have them available, but we're already behind the eight ball on that one. So that's kind of my general thoughts on, on where monkeypox stands and, and my, my general disappointment that it seems like we haven't learned enough from two years of COVID to apply it to another situation, another epidemic, especially when we know that this is going to be the future. This is going to be the norm. And how many more of these outbreaks are we going to have before we start getting things right? So then that brings me to the next question. You know, we used to vaccinate for pox in various forms and polio in various forms. Uh, and, you know, we are, got to the point where we pretty much eradicated smallpox. And I think, I think we actually have eradicated it. It is eradicated. Of- it is the only dis- infectious disease in history that we have officially eradicated. Polio is very close, but not quite. So which brings the question then, you know, with monkeypox, since we have a playbook from smallpox, what is the likelihood that we look at, you know, implementing that playbook? You know, I know that would require vaccination, you know, ex, you know, a, a vaccination push that, you know, ultimately we saw fail with COVID because it got so politicized. But what does what does that potentially look like if vaccination for not just people who have been exposed, but, you know, I mean, mass public in general, if we're looking mm-hmm. to stop this? I think the the. The playbook for any kind of vaccination campaign is, is, I don't want to say largely the same. It does depend on the disease. Who you target first, how you prioritize, how you roll, how you roll things out, it does differ from disease to disease. But the fundamental thing that we need to remember is that with every vaccination campaign, it starts with buy-in, like really good buy-in. And the reason why smallpox, the smallpox eradication was in fact an eradication and not a major reduction was because the mass vaccine campaign was campaign across the world was something that was just embraced by everybody. The Soviet Union, the United States were on board for it. Like the, co- the the Soviet Union and the United States cooperated on a vaccine campaign for smallpox. How huge is that? Now compare mm-hmm. that to today, right? You know, there was you everyone had their squabbles. There were definitely a lot of there was a lot of woe and sadness and war and violence and other issues happening during this the eradication effort. But everyone united and rallied around the the motivation to eradicate smallpox. We're just not in a position right now to have that glo- that global unity. If we did, I feel like we've had a lot of issues on climate change already resolved or starting to be seriously resolved in a way we're just not seeing. We don't have global unity that is required to do something similar for monkeypox as it is for smallpox. And it's not just going to be monkeypox. It's going to be more and more. How many times have I come on this show and talked about COVID saying COVID's not going to be the worst pandemic we see in our lifetimes, right? right. It's I've said this before, and this is just uh, monkeypox might not be it because it seems to have a fairly low mortality rate. Um, and a stupid name, by the way. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it was came from monkeys basically so <laughs> there's the smallpox <laughs> and the monkeypox right it's kind of it kind of sticks it's kind of effective i think but and we're never going to get buy-in if we stigmatize it to one group that was the point exactly. i wanted to make exactly mm-hmm. no there's no yeah what happened with hiv is we in the united states 10 years went by more uh without us really having a a, a serious centralized campaign um where we right. took it seriously in the united states and and now it's still really well uh, gone really well. and it's taken 30 years it took 30 years for us to really get HIV to something that we know is manageable with a really good drug scheme to have, you know, you know, the prep, the, um, the, pr- uh, prophylactic, um, mm-hmm. antiviral mm-hmm. drugs, 
right? It takes decades, right? And that's just the, that's just the time span that we're on when we don't have universal buy-in from the start. Um, so, I mean, I know you asked Jeffrey about, you know, what is what is the playbook? I'm not trying to sound like a politician and answer the question I want I want you to ask, but the, the, the playbook is we need a lot more buy-in than we're seeing. And once that happens, once everyone wants to come to the table and say, this is a common goal, a lot of the rest gets figured out, I don't want to say quickly, but much more efficiently. And we're just so, not seeing that. I don't think we're ever going to see that with any emerging infection until the big one, which COVID was not. So with now with monkeypox, though, you know, sometimes what we see is, is that, you know, there's more buy-in when something tends to be like disfiguring more so than lethal. Nobody wants to look ugly, but, you know, the when it, it seemed like COVID was one of those things where, you know, if it wasn't going to disfigure you, it wasn't necessarily a concern. Now, smallpox, and, you know, we knew how bad it could mess with people. We knew how lethal it was. We knew how ugly it looked. Chickenpox is another one where it's like, I mean, when you look at how lethal chickenpox was, I mean, there was, I mean, it was stupid low, something like one in a hundred thousand, maybe. Um, but with monkeypox, we know that it's a little bit more lethal than that, but it is disfiguring. Um, so when it comes to vaccination, you know, have we kind of looked at this as a, you know, rather than, you know, I know that there's always the hope that we can use less vaccine than, you know, we ultimately want to, mm. but have we looked at this in a, in a light of, you know, rather than sit down at this point and go, yeah, no, let's just try to push it out just far enough. Have we decided to sit down and go, you know what, let's get out ahead of this and try to make the vaccine as widely available as possible. Like Ebola, right? Yeah. I mean, that was, that always should be the goal for public health is try to get the most resources available to control as much, as much disease as efficiently as possible. But the problem that goes right back to what I kind of opened with was the testing issue, right? We, mm-hmm. the, the hockey stick that we have seen in daily case counts shortly after the announcement of rollout of additional testing just shows that we're so far behind we don't we know we know from the data that we have that it is you know there's a lot of spread within the msm community right we know that that's happening but where is it spreading that we're not seeing we right. don't know that because we don't we're, fa- we're already behind on the testing how frequently is it and monkeypox it's it looks like i mean it's not it's not like the bubonic plague where you if you survive you have these massive like four or five inch like buboes that just you know, disfigure you permanently. It's a rash that gets kind of like pussy for a little bit, purulent rather, and just and moves on right over time. It's it's not really permanent. So we don't. People might not be aware of what they're thinking of for monkeypox. We don't know what's going on mm. because it's not being prioritized. It's not being communicated about with COVID. I know there were issues with COVID, but we knew about COVID pretty early on, and we had a lot of public attention on it. And when when the first cases started happening in the United States, we obviously we fell behind it, but we already had a public awareness of what the disease could look like. Um, and I, I think yeah, with the argument of of yeah, it could be disfiguring. Well, it's not permanently disfiguring, or in some in most cases, it's not. And we already don't know where else it's spread, so we can't possibly get out ahead of something that we don't know. Mm. When we're all, we all we know is that we're really far behind based on this recent data just from Friday. And what I really wish would be happening is that every everyone should be saying alarm bells are going off. Look at what's going on. This this case this case count means that we are way behind. But not even the CDC is doing that, right? There's not really a unified message on saying we are behind. Here is a state of emergency. We need help. This is happening. Right. No, no, nothing like that. Not just in the mainstream news media, but not even in the people who are, you know, in charge of this are really, they're not ringing the alarm bell nearly hard, hard enough. So yes, it's a disfiguring disease, but we're already so far behind that people might not even recognize what the disfiguring might look like. And we don't even know who those people might even be because we don't know who their contacts might have been because we're so, so far behind. So for me as a data scientist, one of the things that you have to, re- I always have to recognize is when we see jumps in curves, there are two reasons that there's a jump in a curve or a fall in a curve. Number one is, is that you are in control of what the action is and you are judging the action and what happens next. Or you are studying something and you're, when you see a jump or a fall, it's because there's something that you don't see 
that has happened. And now you're trying to find it. So it's like a proactive versus reactive. I'm causing this. So I expect this, or I am trying to find something and now I'm finding this. So at this point, now that you're seeing a large jump in the curve, it feels like when you start to see stuff like that, that there should be a, a much bigger response than just trying to target, you know, maybe one to two levels out of, of, you know, degrees of separation in order to, you know, potentially vaccinate, but more mm -hmm. so it's like a, we're seeing this, it's time to get fucking serious about this and maybe look more towards a, a broader public response rather than a limited targeted response. Like, contact, uh, contact tracing agree. worked, right? Contact tracing, it didn't work nearly. Contact tracing is a great tool for when you have a contained or mostly contained disease. Right. When you know who's been exposed and you've got to quarantine people. Like that whole strategy works really well. If you have a very high confidence that the ring that you've put around the potentially infected population covers the entirety of the potentially infected population. Right. Does that makes sense, right? Yep. If you if there's a if you see these thousand people might have been infected and you're pr and you're looking for maybe a hundred cases and you're very confident that somewhere in those thousand you have the hundred true cases of the disease, then contact tracing is a really effective tool. It's containment. Mm -hmm. But what what we talk about in public health is, or the, the the public health language, what Jeffrey's talking about, is switching from a containment focused strategy to a mitigation focused strategy. Right. And with COVID, we spent too much time trying to do containment. And yes, gotcha. we do do case investigations, and especially it helped with, um, uh, especially like with my work my work on long term care facilities when there were individual cases that started in a long-term care facility and we knew other people were exposed, contact tracing and specified response was really useful because the frame of reference you had was the long-term care facility of like maybe 50 to 100 residents and maybe 100 staff. Like that's mm. kind of a large one, but you ha you could put a box around the people who are potentially infected and you limited your response to that box. The mm -hmm. data, the, the spike in data that I saw that we're talking about uh, uh, that, J that Jeffrey and I was is asking more mm -hmm. about is the a function stick. of the fact that we did not we don't know what that ring is we cannot put a ring around the some section of the population say we're pretty confident all of monkeypox is contained within this ring we just don't wow. know exactly where it's gone beyond that ring is it's gone it's it's gone way beyond that range it's gone way mm. beyond that range already uh and the reason why you see that hockey stick is because the true positives that were not detected. There were a lot of true positives that were not detected because we didn't have the testing capacity. It's not like we've all of a sudden seen every single case, every single case, and now every single case has absolutely exploded because we were contacting right. the whole way. The CDC, in its press releases, which I have dug through, has actually admitted in tactful language that they have not been able to follow up with everyone that they actually had. Like they, they, they were not able to follow up with every case and close contact that they already were tracking. So even among the groups that we had already been testing before expanded testing happened and this hockey stick happened, the CDU was saying, yeah, we're kind of falling behind. So now mm -hmm. how far behind are we knowing that we just went from like 50 cases a day to 476 as an artifact of testing actually being available? Right. And that's just the first couple days of testing being available. What happens again, when it gets rolled out more? Those cases were there. You can just now see them. If you tested more people, you would see even more. Yes, yes, a function of what, testing being available. You don't know what you're looking for because you don't have a spyglass large enough to see the whole picture. Right, you don't have the black light. You can't yep. see all the all the sperm on the walls in the hotel. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, don't get me started. Oh man, that 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 hits me right in the feels, the 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 the, the visceral feels as a certified infection preventionist and environmental health sanitarian. Oh God. yeah, I've been watching wow. a lot of Hotel Impossible. <laughs> so, but just to bring it down for for people to understand, the only reason that we know about the cases is because we tested them and we were looking for them. That hockey stick was shorter before because we just weren't looking for them but at some point if you tested everybody in america you would find the true amount and it wouldn't be everybody but it wouldn't be nobody right. yeah and i'd be willing to bet that with the if we were to magically get everybody tested tomorrow and then we did the studies of who was infected i guarantee you the 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 msm community that is the overwhelming majority of known cases right now 
uh, they would not be nearly as high a percentage. I bet the monkeypox is spread far and wide outside of that community already because we already yeah. have a few cases that we're tracking that it's already outside that community. But how many people are not being tested have already been exposed and they don't even right. know it because we don't even know. They don't even know to get a test. They don't even know if they want to get a test, if one's available. And if one's available, you know, what's the turnaround time for that coming back? And being positive and how, like, the, the timeline, this is the fundamental failure with case investigation contact tracing, right, with COVID. Someone gets sick, gets the sniffles, gets a fever, cough, shortness of breath. They go get a test. It takes them two days for them to get a test turned around, in which case they've already probably exposed a couple of people. Then right. the test is positive. Then that gets pushed to the local public health laboratory. In 24 to 48 hours after that, you're already at, like, day four, day five, somebody gives a call to the original case, right, who actually mm-hmm. tested positive. Five days behind, mm-hmm. you know, is is so much time to identify what's going on. And in the meantime, right. who knows who else has been exposed? If we had immediate testing, immediate knowledge, like the rapid antigen test, and and a much more effective strategy like that, we would be able to do case investigation in like less than two days. That's when it's really useful, right? We need a, a much faster time, um, uh, turnaround time for that. And monkeypox is already probably that level. And that 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 level of, of distance of like four, five, six, seven days mm. until we have identified an individual case, and who knows what happens then. So I I'm ringing a lot of alarm bells, you know, right now. So and I know now, that Jeffrey is, is is up against the clock, so I don't want to I don't want to yeah, take away too much so, time. So then the next question really is is what does vaccine production and uh disbursement look like for the smallpox monkeypox vaccine because i know we have a limited supply as it is but how do you how do you meet the demand for something like this is this something that's easy to tool up and get moving or is this something where you know in order to get the number of doses that you would need to effectively control this we're you know months behind yeah, we're behind. Um, so the strategic national stockpile of vaccines is designed to backfill um, and and kind of rush to the front lines of containment-focused strategies, right? So we talk about containment versus mitigation. Oh, crap, we have five people who might have been exposed to Ebola in Texas. Activate the strategic national stockpile, send 1,000 vaccines down there and, and backfill because they don't know what's going on while those people are contained by local public health authorities. That's how the strategic national stockpile is supposed to work. It's not just supposed to magically be able to vaccinate everybody. We have hundreds of thousands of vaccines available, but we live in a country of hundreds of millions, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we've already, there already been, the federal government's already assigned contracts for, uh, to increase production of approved, you know, smallpox, monkeypox vaccines. Um, and I'm, I'm encouraged by that, but we don't really know with, this is a new strain that's spreading differently. It looks phylogenetically like the, if you look at the actual genetics of it, it looks pretty different from the previous monkeypox strains that the vaccines were developed against, right? We're seeing how well that's working with Omicron with COVID right now. How effective are those vaccines going to be? We don't really know. My, but the, the, the main point to, to stay on topic is the strategic national stockpile is not our answer, right? We need to have anticipated this to start mass producing vaccines and start pushing messaging saying, I know we just came are, are still with COVID. Another one's coming and this is going to be the norm for the next insert years, right? Mm-hmm. This is what we got to do. We're rolling out vaccines. Here's the high priority groups, right? We're already months behind on the decision-making for the rollouts, much less the actual production and the rollout itself. So we're, we're, we're in a tough spot. So all I can say is, look, if, if you have any, symptoms of any respiratory disease stay home and let people know that you might have had close in close contact with right just just let them know if you don't know what it is if you test for covid you're not sure and if it's negative you know still stay home still make sure people are aware because if they get sick they need to be aware that's the one major message i have because we're trying to spin up a lot of federal level responses that's going to take time and if you individually do your responsibility to try to stay home if you're sick, to not to isolate, to wear the mask if you have to go out in public, all that stuff, mm-hmm. right? Do the right thing, because if everyone does a little bit of the right thing a little more, it'll make the federal response a lot more effective in the long run. Agreed. All right, guys, I got a bolt, so I cool. will catch you later. Thank you, Jeffrey. I love you. Thanks, Thanks Jeffrey. Bye. Awesome. So I've had a qu- I've had a question for you in my head for years and I've never been able to just address it. And so what I, I I think people have a problem with education. I think they have a problem with learning and I think they have a problem with learning how to learn. 
And what always fascinates me about you is is you're an academic, wouldn't you say? Yeah, my my recovering academic. <laughs> recovering. So, but you, what you do is you love to learn. You love to know. You educate yourself in different fields. You take different classes, not because you're forced to, as much as I think you kind of enjoy knowing more and learning more. And I think that's something that people, they just don't know how to do that. So what I've always wanted to ask you, how how did you begin learning? Did your Did your parents encourage it? Did you just have this thirst for it? Was there books and opportunities available to you that led you in that direction what what made you want to go education discovery channel <laughs> right okay. i when i was when i was a kid so background my, both my parents have doctorates in various forms of chemistry right so they're phds okay. so they've always really valued education and benefited directly from it and my dad is okay. owned the first person to get a phd in his family he was the first person in his family to graduate high school nice. um so he he really valued um the the impact that education had because it really because his parents who did not have the good fortune and, and and had rough lives honestly but they really encouraged and set aside a lot of time for him to get educated and he pushed forward to make that you know be successful and my mom largely was similar right where she was the first person in her family to go to to get a doctoral degree um, both of them had that background and so from very early on they said you know you are going to get educated and it's not just going to be relying on school to do the education thing. And then right. I'm going to come back home and then it's, it's, it's over. Right. They were constantly putting uh, time and effort into, into educating us. We had dinner time conversations, right? There was a table with me, my parents and my brother, where we sat down and we talked about stuff going on. And then in the evening, you know, instead of, Letting me play video games. Like I love a good video game. I've been playing some Assassin's Creed Black Flag recently. Nice. Um, but when when I was a kid, instead of playing video games, I didn't get in. I was too young for smartphones um, back then. But they right. sat me down in front of educational television. Right. Steve Irwin. Steve Irwin was one of my heroes. You know, Nigel Marvin, Jeff Corwin. I drew, I grew up with that generation of like the modern naturalists who right. presented informational content in a fun way. Kratz, you know, Kratz creatures and Zabumafu, right? That was what my childhood was. It wasn't just the the distract the kids so I can drink some wine cartoons. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's important for me to recognize there's a lot of privilege that's wrapped up in, in, in that because, first of all, my parents, you know, they had the education, they had the degree, they, they had worked really hard, uh, but they, they had created an opportunity for my brother and I to have time to, or to, for time to spend with us where they weren't constantly um you know trying to find an extra job to make ends meet or sure actually no, had I a television that. at home right i think it's important to acknowledge that privilege um but as as my generation starts becoming parents i think it's really important for us to remember that you can find educational content more and more easily every single day this is before youtube this is before smartphones this is before social media and i know that social media has a rough context but it's you can you can find sections of it that are so engaging and so educational so Agreed. if you start your kids off just by the philosophy of learning doesn't stop when you leave school and when your homework's done right. and constantly try to, to support their learning and their growth outside of it, um, they will find the resources that they want to pursue their next you know, interest, be a professional, personal career, whatever. So, so okay. that's a, a bit of a long-winded answer, but how did I start getting interested in learning my parents carved out time in their schedules and forced me to carve out schedules a time in my schedule to make it happen outside of school and it okay. became a habit it became a good habit so that's so kind of it was it was time time and conversation it was time conversation and a lot of dedication from parents that really cared about it from when i was a very young age right okay because i think even a parent with two jobs that connects with their child for a half an hour or an hour can ask the question, tell me about your homework, you know, so that the parent, the parent might take the stance of wanting to learn from the child. Yeah. And that, tell me I what think, you learned is a great way. Teaching others is the most right. valuable way to learn yourself. So, right. So I think just have it, opening up the opportunity. If you're going to see your child, you have a chance to say, what was your homework about or clean the dishes. You can either nag them or encourage them with the time that you have. And maybe 
maybe that's all it takes is just show that it's important to you, show that it's an interest that you would want, and so that's something you want for your kids. The same way that I think an artist, a musician, teaches their child at an early age to play the guitar, not because it's important, but because it's important to the parent. Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree with that. And it doesn't okay, just cool. have to be what's, it doesn't just have to be like science and math and school subjects, right? It could right. be, I don't, I don't know, think of a, of a, of a, a father who is a mechanic working on his car, right? Eight-year-old right. Johnny comes out. And it's like, hey, let me show you something. I want, I want to show you. Something. Obviously, being safe, right? It just gets get them learning something. It doesn't matter what the content is. It's about the process of of right. building those synapses, problem solving, being aware of the fact that you can keep your brain turned on outside of school, right? right. And, and being engaged in certain things, right? That's and, and, you, and debriefing debriefing and doing like after action like hey what went well in school today what didn't go well hey i didn't heard yeah. you got a d on your test what was wrong right it, it, a lot of it comes down from parenting and that's why i i really support like you know policies that encourage healthy families right that's kind of my political a lot of my political ideology is based on we want families to be robust because robust families support well-rounded well-educated safe and well-adjusted children who are going to go off and do great things Right. And it's and when stuff doesn't happen like that, a lot of things happen that are outside the kid's control. The kid gets put into a lot of situations that are just really rough, and bad stuff happens. Not just criminal behavior, but not being able to get you know, not being able to you know, rise up through socioeconomic status, not being able to find your own success, finding a purpose, right? The right. mental health issues, right? It's it's not just oh, these parents are bad, so these kids are criminals. It's there's so much more ripple effect that can that 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 comes out of that. So really dedicate your time to your kids' self-development and encouragement. That's that's my message from that. I agree with that. And I, what I think is important is little Johnny might watch you work on the car, but you never know what little Johnny's going to pick up on. He might be the next chemist that wants to know how to better work the ignition system, or he might be the metallurgist that says, I like the way these tools feel. I want to learn how to work with metal or he might become a mechanic. And so yeah. the option, the options open up when you offer ways to learn. I was always, I was always a people watcher and it didn't take a lot of money and education to learn what people were going to do based on what they've done before. And, but my mom always, she always debated me about everything and anything. And when I won the debate, she would switch to my side and make me pick the losing side till I won. That's that's how I got to go outside. <laughs> yeah, that's, and that's great. That's that's a great way right. to engage, right? Learn, sorry, learning how to um, support an argument with evidence. I remember one phrase. It's it's right. burned into my memory. When I was a kid, I would like ramble a lot, and my parents would stop me, and my mom especially, and she'd say, "Stop." write me a paragraph under the heading of what I want my mom to know or <laughs> what I want to do this weekend or what is going wrong in my bedroom that, you know, whatever, whatever the situation was, she was like, mm -hmm. stop, take a pause, articulate your thoughts. And it wasn't like literally writing a paragraph, but kind of encouraging me to think in the concept of here is the paragraph topic sentence, then follow it up with information to support your argument and then wrap it up with a key conclusion, right? right. If you can learn to communicate that. But, but she, she didn't just let me ramble and say, oh, that's nice, honey, while she was looking at her phone. Right. She listened and said, okay, this kid's rambling. Let's correct this because if he learns this now, it's going to be a lot easier later. And to this day, my mom and I have really good communication. And sometimes I'll do it to her back and she'll laugh. <laughs> no, you see that too when you were a kid. Because it's, yeah. it's, it's so easy, but it's a, it's a great way to phrase it. Um, and, and when I do it to my wife, she's, uh, she's a little annoyed, but it sometimes it also, happens. Um, and it, it's, it's it really pulls valuable, the, it so. pulls the ocean, it pulls the emotion out of the debate though, right? You're feeling yeah. this emotion and you're saying it with emotion and she's saying, step back, take a breath, formulate your thoughts and come out speaking in a way that people can understand. Yeah. Articulate your speech and it'll be this amazing how, how well the world unfolds for you. But yeah, really that. prioritizing, you know, taking the time for your kids to to encourage them to want to seek out education, to give them those opportunities, to take the time for them, and, and to just really have the, your mind in the right place. Mistakes happen. We always make mistakes, but I really fundamentally believe that is that is a really critical component to the future of our society. Is like how well are parents going to support kids who want 
to be better and want to be strong and want to be successful and want right. to learn about the world around them and engage, right? The worst thing mm -hmm. that happens to a lot of people is they just feel cut off in the world. It's like, oh, whatever, what, what's the point anymore? That's depression, right. that's, that's depression, that's crime, that's mental health, that's deadbeat jobs, that's, that's a lot of, 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 of non-success comes from that. So try to grow that out of your kid early on and it'll be really great. Sorry, you got me rambling. I should write a write a paragraph under the content. Right. <laughs> well, I, 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 I sprung I sprung that on you because I wanted I wanted all of that because people will decide from that what was the important message in it. You know, I like yeah. that. What I'm taking away is parents just need to train their children to teach, and I like that. I, my mom always said, "Explain it to me. Teach it to me. What did you learn?" Like. What she, she was one day I was going to go out with my friends and my mom said, that's fine. But before you go, just tell me where's the one place where the American flag isn't lowered when a president died. We were stuck in the house for four hours before somebody said the moon. <laughs> and then she was like, thanks. Bye. And she let us go. And it was those little lessons that I hated, but now I kind of appreciate, you know, and I love thinking of the family dynamic of people educating each other instead of yelling criticisms back and forth. Oh yeah, I fully agree with it. And listening, taking the time to listen and learn, because you might learn something from somebody. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, everybody is everybody's knowledgeable at something, even if it's a struggle or a pain or an event that they went through, and they can help other people with it. But if we're yelling at each other, we'll just never know. Absolutely. So, is getting back on. Is there any is there anything we should be worrying about with COVID? I know there's new variants coming out, and there's a lot being said about the variants, and I'm not quite sure. We're running out of a stockpile for vaccines. This is all interesting to me, but is that okay? Is this variant bad? Should we be worried? Yeah, I'm. I think that the general message with COVID, I, I, I knowing this crow was coming up, I decided to do a little bit of homework because that's that's just how I roll. <laughs> and I, know, I, okay. I want you. I, I know you like numbers. I know Jeffrey likes numbers, and um, I figured you'd appreciate this. So um, I think one of the, the the main narrative that's happening right now is people want COVID to be over. They're kind of mm -hmm. done with COVID because it's pretty mild, and you know Omicron's not so bad anymore, and we're not having such a bad time with it, right? So okay, mild, let's, mild, let's, mild for some. It's still yeah. mild for some. That's, I mean, that's that's the narrative. I don't agree with it, but that's the narrative. So, so right. let's let's put some numbers. Let's let's bring out some numbers to see what's going on. So, this is from CDC data, right? Yeah. Um, so, obviously, when it comes to, to to mild infection, whatever, right? A lot of people getting sick with COVID. I think there's a, a mass undercount of how many people are actually getting COVID, right? Wow. Uh, but let's look at hospitalizations and death rates, right? So, since COVID emerged uh, uh, in you know in the United States. We've had rates of hospitalization and ICU admission and deaths that have followed like peaks and waves going in, right? Under different mm -hmm. circumstances, right? Um, what's been really interesting to see is that since mid-April um, of this year, it has been kind of a slow burn increase. We're four and like our, our we were doing an average of like ten thousand people hospitalized per day. Uh, now we're up over thirty-four thousand, but it's been a very wow. slow, gradual increase over time. Okay. Um, and for context, the peak of our last winter wave with the first wave of Omicron was 150,000 people each day. Right. And we so have, we have about, we have about 120,000 hospital beds in the nation. I learned that yeah. during COVID. Yeah. So it was really, it was real. it's, it's, it is much lower for sure than it was before. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and the, since that time, you know, early end of April, early May, the average death rate has oscillated somewhere between like on average 300 to 400 deaths per day. Right. So that's that's kind of the national average. Again, for context, in the peak of the winter wave, we were already at 2,700. Now, what was the original narrative that kind of just downplayed um, COVID? It was a comparison to the flu. Oh, it's just not not so bad, but it's like kind of the flu, right? It's right. Just the flu again. All right. So for the 2019-2020 flu season, which is the last one before COVID emerged, um, the estimates for the CDC were 24,000 to 62,000 deaths over the course of that period. That's from right. flu, specifically from flu. So if you do the math, and again, that's definitely in a peak, but if you just do a cumulative average across that entire time, the low to high estimates are anywhere between 113 per day to 291 per day, right? So the worst estimate, the high-end estimate from the CDC about uh, flu deaths just before we had COVID, the worst was 291 per day. 
probably a little bit higher than you know in the actual peaks in the in the worst months of it, right? Um, but the the key the key point is like right now in an era where we're kind of like over the pandemic and people think Omicron is mild or whatever, our baseline for death rate from COVID is still higher than the average death rate from the flu was just before COVID. And Correct. we're like off season for respiratory viruses. And this is kind of the lowest it's been in a while, right? Exactly. It, where we're at, and, and this kind of ties back into what I was talking about earlier with monkeypox is that, right, the, we're entering kind of a new era where more infections are going to become more common. And new emerging viruses and new emerging pathogens are going to come out and they're, they're going to increase death rates, right? We've kind of flipped on our heads uh, the society where, you know, before, like in, up until the age of sanitation, right, the overwhelming right. majority of death was from infectious disease. And then now it's like chronic non-communicable disease. We're kind of seeing this uptick in what infection and in what we in infectious disease, like mortality and morbidity in this country. But right. what's interesting is that we're account we're competing for that mentally as a country by saying, ah, it's not so bad. Right? It's not as bad as it could be, or it was worse before, so we don't really care. I'm kind of done with it. But the reality is the data show that the death rates are going to continue to climb. They're they're continuing to climb right now, just not just from COVID, but as we have more and more and more viruses emerge through spillover events, as we know are going to happen, um, the death rates from these infectious diseases are just going to compound. And that's going to right. be our reality if we're not careful and we don't really take this seriously. So, so that, that's kind of where my general thoughts are on COVID is that um, it might general. not be as bad as it was just now, but consider what you're thinking when you say, oh, it's not so bad. Like, what is your baseline for not so bad now compared to where it was pre-pandemic? And what you're yeah, because you're what you're comparing is the peak of flu against the average of, of COVID. The, the peak of flu averaged across from like October through the winter. Right. Uh, compared to July, which is the exact opposite of when flu season exactly. supposed to be for COVID, and what we think this is like the the trough, uh, the the bottom level of this is uh, this is not bad at all. We're already way worse than we're peak flu season in terms of of, of illness from from COVID. It's really really nasty. So it's think, really a consider- shame. We spent we spent so much time building an infrastructure perfect for battling infectious diseases and now nobody wants to really care about infectious disease yeah it's it's it is it unfortunately yeah i think you're right um i I don't want to say no one there's definitely people who definitely care right of course and people who want to be responsible do the right thing um and 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 at least just care um, but it's interesting to see how quickly the narrative shifts to something that is way worse than it was before because we just assume that that's okay now because of the trauma that we've endured as a country throughout COVID. The, I agree. The pandemic so far. It's just, it's, it's just, it's kind of sad to think about, but I think it's important for us to kind of raise that flag and make sure people are aware. It's like, check your baseline. What is your baseline now to where it was two years ago? Yeah. And in what is it? Two, two and a half years, we lost a million people. Yeah. That's that's not that's not that's not the flu. That's not that's something bad. Yeah. And it's, yeah. Uh, oh goodness, only, only knows what's going to happen. So, so that's kind of where my mind is at with flu, okay. uh, with COVID. Excuse me. With COVID, and does does um this does this copy paste infectious vaccine creation help us with the monkeypox? Is that going to make production of it quicker? Um, well, the ma- one of the major issues with rollout of COVID vaccines is that none of them were, um, they were all brand new, right? They were, none of them were uh, emergency right. authorized, none of them were approved because they were completely new and we had to test them. It took months right, to test right. them, right? And that was really brutal. Um, but with the monkeypox vaccines, they, a lot of the, the monkeypox vaccine, there is one that's already FDA approved and has been for, forever. So okay. we can fast track. We can just be in straight up distri- production and distribution. With, but with production and distribution, you have to have the buy-in. You have to have the people who want to pay for it. You have to have the logistics sure. to transport and distribute, right? The COVID okay. vaccine effort was incredible. It was absolutely spectacular. I mean, there were definitely issues with it. But think about how many people signed up to volunteer at vaccination clinics. How many people, right. like the, the whole infrastructure that emerged out of nowhere because we had a national emergency that people rallied around controversially to some but on the whole what we did for covid was completely unprecedented uh in terms of what we did as a public health response 
Agreed. now compare that to, oh, we can just make a bunch of monkeypox vaccines. Okay, how are we going to distribute them? Who are we going to distribute them to? Well, <laughs> who are we going to distribute them to? It's dependent on who has the d- disease. And if we don't right. have enough tests, we don't know who has it, then how are we going to target those properly, right? We can target the people we know already has the disease, but how are we going to have the effective messaging and the logistics and the management and the buy-in and all the, you know, and, th- and that's where public health really turns in from a com- away from a conversation of what is the disease doing to what are we as people going to do about it? And that is much, much, much harder than, in my opinion, than the surveillance and the response and the case investigation and contact tracing and right. the, kind of the bread and butter of, of infectious disease epidemiology. It's how are we going to institute programs that are going to be effective long-term. That's a huge, huge problem. All right. I'll, I'll wrap up with one more thing because we're running out of time. Thank you for being here, by the way. That was my fault. That wasn't yours. Do you? Is there a food that makes you all happy? Is there a food in your house that makes you happy, helps your mental health? Uh, there is. My wife makes amazing muffins. She uses a mix of um, raspberries and blueberries, which is great. And she actually supplements some of the flour for vanilla protein powder. So you get like eight to 10 grams of protein in a muffin. And it's very, very filling. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a meal of a muffin really well. So instead of just feeling like you're carb loaded and you got to go sit in the couch and just vegetate for, for two hours after eating a delicious <laughs> muffin, you, you, feel, you feel kind of happily full from a good protein, a protein based. Um, uh, breakfast, you know, yeah. continental bakery item, especially when your wife makes it with love. That's my favorite. What about you? Love. I like the love. Right now, I'm just exploring knowing what's in my foods instead of. I, I'm trying to. I think I had fructose malabsorption, so I was trying to lose fructose. So I was trying to learn about corn meal and corn flour and, um. I, I've really been into fruit. I try, my whole fridge this week is filled with fruit, grapes, oranges, melons of different kinds, and I cut nice. it up, put it in there. Because even if I eat a bit of garbage, I know I can backfill with some great fruit, you know? <laughs> Sounds like we should get a good dietitian, um, like a registered dietitian on the show. And we can have a whole I episode agree. That. I would love that. I would love to listen and learn. I tell my doctor every day, I need a nutritionist. I don't need a doctor. You can't fix what, what food could break, what food has broken. Let me fix myself, and then you can determine what's wrong with me. But you don't know if my intestines are swollen because of coffee or <laughs> because of ulcerative colitis. So that's, let's get... the, that's, the ally, that's the allied health sciences coming together, right? The dietitians, the pharmacists, the, um, the, right. um, the public health professionals, right? It's, it's not just about diagnosing a disease it's it's understanding lots of different dimensions of health and i think that's that's really valuable so that's what i, I go have a muffin for. go have a muffin um <laughs> give marissa a hug tell her congratulations i'm so happy you guys went to iceland i'm a little jealous about that but you didn't go in time to see the ice castles being built in iceland so maybe we'll <laughs> all go back and do a show from there <laughs> we did we did go hiking on glaciers though and that was really fun that's close I enough for me it. I love that for you. For 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 Dan, for you being in the minutia of the pandemic for so long and putting your, your wedding aside for it, I love the fact that you took the time for yourself that way. For you both. So thank you, my friend. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate everything you do to to push out in engaging and informative and supportive um audio content to to the masses. I'm I'm, I'm a huge fan it. of the show and I'm always happy to come around and, and, and be here. So thank you for taking the time for an extra chat. Of course, we're already scheduling our next meeting. So, <laughs> with oh, you, baby. I'm looking forward to it. Take care, my friend. Have fun. Love you. Bye. Bye bye. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright tonight, we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our Ask not 
best we can. What your country can do for you. I have a dream. Ask what you can do for your country. I, poor little children. Yes, we can. One day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Welcome, welcome to public, to public access, America. access America. Yes, we can. Sunday live streams on YouTube. I wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. On Twitter. Apple Podcasts, Podcast, Stitcher, Stitcher Smart, Smart Radio, 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 Radio Public, and Spotify. Yes, we can. Public Access Public America. Access history America. in the making. Making history in the making. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.